I met with Maggie on a Sunday morning in December. It was cold and wet. It had just stopped snowing. We decided to hike along a nearby creek so we could talk about what it had been like to be her so she could share her experiences with me. We were joined by a kingfisher who followed us most of the way up the creek. And if you listen carefully in the background, you can hear him chattering away at us. Watch out for the edge. They look like... There's like four different kinds over there. Yeah. Oh, gosh, I wish I had my bird book. They're beautiful. There's a mallard. I, I was going to say, I know mallard. That's the one I know. Um, I'm, that might be a widgeon. Is it related to a pigeon? Not related to a pigeon, but um, American widgeon or a type of widgeon. Sounds like it should be on Harry Potter. Yeah. Okay. Now walk down to the water. I, it says that they're spawning. I want to see if we can see any babies. I, I was hoping we could check out some fry. Or the ceiling and little guys and the beautiful oh, clear band. creek. You would not believe how much plastic we found when we were diving on Friday. I would believe it. It was sad. But like thin plastic that looked like leaves. Like, so that the animals couldn't tell. Yeah. You know, unless you took a bite of it, you wouldn't know. Yeah. Yeah. That's going to be the next generation's big cleanup project. Yeah. So how was your Thanksgiving? It was uneventful, which is good. Quiet and easy. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. The, the forest always seems so um, quieter in the winter, not as lively. Yeah, I do like the crunch noise though. I do too. So Maggie, I was going to ask you about the earliest memory that you had as a child. What was it like the first thing that you could never remember? <laughs> uh. Well, they're like kind of flashes, and I can remember several. Most of them are bad news or me getting in trouble, which is probably pretty common. Uh, not, not me getting in trouble, but those would be the memories that kids would have. Um, let's see. You want to hear all of them? I don't know which one came first. Just tell me uh, whatever you'd like to share. So we had a sunroom in our house that was like, you know, enclosed glass with a table. And there was this lounge chair that was metal, you know, like the 70s style with the little squishy bars that went across. And I was playing in it and you can recline it back, but you have to like lift it forward and move the bar and push back. And when I pushed back, I hit a lamp oh. and I broke the lamp. And my dad was so mad. And I could not understand why he was so mad because he had a second lamp that matched it. <laughs> and so I'm like, you already have another one. What's the big deal? He ended up gluing it back together. And I always remember seeing it with the glue marks, but um, I was grounded. So you yeah. were how old? Maybe six? Oh gosh, no. Younger than that, probably. Oh, okay. Uh, probably like four. And uh, um, I was grounded and my, grandma, my grandmother, you couldn't call her grandma, grandmother was watching me. And I was all defiant because I wanted to go play with my friends. So I took my big wheel out and I went riding on the sidewalk. And she was standing at the front door with her arms on her, sh or on her hips like, you need to come back inside. <laughs> and I'm like, hey, <laughs> can't hear you. 
She didn't come after you? No, she was kind of old and feeble. Um, but I don't think anything ever happened from that. And then I remember um, the neighbor died across the street. And we lived right on Lake Michigan. Oh. And so she, her property had a cliff that went down to the water. And you could walk. She let us go across her property and down to the private beach that she owned that section. And uh, she was a widow and had lived there for a long time by herself. And when she finally died, they had a like the funeral right there in the lawn. And it was a nice summer day and it was warm out. And my window was open and my window could look out that direction because it faced her house. And, uh, but, sorry, what do you see? It's a big kingfisher right there. Oh, isn't he beautiful? Sorry, keep with your story. I am not good at seeing the birds. That's okay. I think I'm, I saw I'm a, a terrible. Leak. I'm a terrible host. Uh, Go ahead and, and continue <laughs> your story. So um, anyway, um, they started to sing in oh. honor of her, right? right? And I thought it was funny, <laughs> so I'm joined in from across the street, and it was like this la la, you know, like really just for. So were they singing a hymn? I, I'm sure they were. Yeah, okay. I don't know what it was, but. It was very vibrato, and and so I joined in. And the next thing I see is my dad turn and start walking, and I'm like, "Oh crap!" <laughs> so I ran and I hid in my closet, probably for like three hours. <laughs> he came in my room, looked around, and then left. I think he knew where I was. I was just like, "She can just sit there and suffer." <laughs> So was your, was your dad the disciplinarian in the house? No, no. That's So whenever it was him that was involved, it was extra scary because he never really did do any of that stuff. I didn't know they hunted around here. Well, they eat fish, and so there's, they might be working on the baby salmon down there. Aww. Well, there's other fish in the, in the stream, but... He's quite chatty. We're probably interrupting him, his morning feed. So mom was a disciplinarian. Yeah. Now my dad, I mean, the other stories with my dad, I remember like uh, 4th of July, the, um, they would do fireworks right off the pier, uh, which was, you know, half a mile up the street. And uh, I, they were scary. And so my dad and I would watch from my bedroom window. And so I could see them without hearing them. Um, but I remember sitting on his um, shoulders at the fair, or not the fair, but at the parade, so I could see. I remember not being allowed to play tennis because I was too small. So I got to be the tennis ball getter. And they thought, oh, this will be fun for her. It wasn't, but I did it. And then one day I was, I like to be barefoot. And uh, I was running around, and you know, on the um, old tennis ball cans, yeah. you pop the lid off, and it'd be that metal ring. Yeah. I walked across one of those and <gasps> sliced the bottom of my foot open, and it was bleeding everywhere. So their game ended, and my dad scooped me up and rode home, and proceeded to stick my dried, bloody foot under the hot water and pull my feet apart, or my toes apart. Oh. So he could see what was wrong. He wasn't the most gentle man when it came to stuff like that because he was a doctor and he was just like, let's fix it, you know. Mm. And 
Did, I, you, did you stitch you up? I didn't need stitches, but um, there's been other times he'd stitched me. Um, <laughs> we were at the in the car, and I was excited because my mom was taking me to get some new like Buster Brown something or another, and I was really excited. And we pull into the mall, and I was jumping in the back of the station wagon, and you know, back when you didn't have seatbelts and stuff. Right. And uh, then all of a sudden, I started to cry, and my mom thought I was throwing a fit because for some reason now I didn't want to go shoe shopping and she was like kind of like perturbed and get over it and so I uh kind of sucked it up and went inside with her and I'm sitting there trying on shoes and I'm like <laughs> you know doing that number and uh I bent over to buckle the shoe or whatever and she saw the top of my head and was like oh my god what happened and when I had been jumping in the car the light frame on the um, dome light of the car was broken oh. and there was a metal piece kind of just hanging there <laughs> and I rammed my head into it oh. and instead of telling my mom I was injured I just kind of ignored it <laughs> and uh, yeah so she saw it and freaked out and took me home and then my dad stitched me up so your earliest memories were of things where you know, bigger events where you either yeah. got in trouble or got injured. Yeah, or asked mom if Santa was real. And what'd she say? She said, I don't think you really want to know the answer to that. And I said, no, I really do. I can handle it. And I probably was about six at this point. And uh, she's like, I don't think you can. And I'm like, I can, I can. And uh, we, <laughs> she's like, okay, no, he's not real. And I looked at her and I'm like, you're a liar! And I ran out of the room. <laughs> so I think I always kind of knew from that point on, but I, I went with it for a long time still. Oh. But I think I would have called her a liar had she said, of course he's real. So were you kind of a like a spunky, defiant kid? You were the third, right? I was the third. I was a baby. So I never really got in trouble other than that breaking the lamp and getting grounded. I know, like nothing, none of those things ever brought consequences oh. other than my own fear <laughs> of thinking all oh, the horrible things. Um, I was kind of a butt of a kid, I guess. I don't know. I learned how to make macaroni pretty young and was, would stand on a stool and make it myself. And that was in kindergarten. Um, I packed my own lunches when I was probably eight. Maybe a little younger. I don't know. My mom worked full time and I was the last one. So she went back to school when I went back to school. And I just, I don't know. What was your relationship with your parents like? My dad traveled a lot. So he was gone or um, we'd see him on the weekends or, you know, because I'd already be in bed when he'd get home or something like that. He would take the train to um, Chicago. And, uh. My mom was, I, I loved my mom, I just, um, I think she was just always overwhelmed with kids and life and husband and job and stuff, but um, she, she cooked every night, she was, did major birthday parties, I mean we always had like home themed birthday parties that were over the top and she took us places and tucked us in and read us stories and I could go in there when the um, when there was thunder and lightning and crawl in bed with her and she would say, it's just God playing the drums. 
I didn't believe her. <laughs> but, yeah. Now, my dad was always kind of that person that you, he was like magical because you didn't really see him much. And when you did, it was like, you didn't know how he was going to be, if he was going to be in his humorous, goofy mood or his sullen, just quiet mood or what. But, so your mom is kind of a single parent in some ways. Uh, you know, yeah. the day-to-day -day Yeah, daily she tasks. did. She did most everything. And uh, he was, you know, he was the breadwinner for sure. I mean, she, back then, even though she was a nurse and um, she started teaching back then, I think. Um, but, you know, women always made less than men back then. So still do in some cases. Well, yeah, yeah. still do. But she was a, a nurse and then went on and got her teaching degree and taught um, nurses and became a professor at San Jose State before she retired. So, a chapter in a book somewhere. Yeah. So. so, when you were like a young woman, say, maybe 15, 16, you're thinking about what your life would be like? <laughs> no. Could you ever imagine the life that you have now? Uh, well, no, but at 15 and 16, I was trying to get out of kind of a drug-induced state I was in and the friends I hung out with and things like that. So I, I moved. I uh, kind of just changed my life completely. And... Um, moved up with a girlfriend and her mom so you left two your, hours away. You left your own house. Yes. Yeah. Did that hit your mom pretty hard? Um, I think so. Um, <clears throat> my dad was the one that was more upset than my mom because yeah. uh, he didn't understand it. Kind of the head in the sand type guy. Yeah. I didn't know there was a lot of other things going on with my mom or with me or my sisters or so. But yeah, so I wanted to reinvent myself. Did you? Yeah, in a different way, but there was still, I still had some challenges with drugs even when I moved and it was more recreational at that point, but um, yeah. Um, I don't know. I think I reinvented a, a very similar copy of the one I left, but. I wouldn't say I, I've become a different person until probably my divorce with Duke. But. And that was a surprise? <laughs> yeah. Well, eventually no. Because I was the one that did it. But You mean you mean requested? Yes. Yeah. But. Yeah, he was supposed to be my forever guy. I was an idiot. <laughs> But that's okay. And so, your life now, when you look back, how do you feel about it? I mean, when you think about your, I mean, I'm not going to betray your age, but, you know, the last couple decades, what does it seem like it's been like to you? How do you think, how do you think other people see you versus how you see yourself? Uh, 
I guess I see myself as just doing what I need to do to protect my family and survive and try and find joy. Um, but I know that other people worry about me, think that I take on too much, think I'm going to have a nervous breakdown, <laughs> um, uh, you know, are very protective of me. Don't like it hearing when people are mean or um, take, woo, take advantage of me or anything like that. But um, I don't know. I mean, my life could be a whole hell of a lot worse. And it's got some really, really good parts to it. And the not so great parts are part of life, I think. So you have five kids? Yes. Tw almost 26. And just, what's today, the first? In 12 days. Who's oh. almost 26? Cody's almost 26. Cody. Yeah. Okay. And then Ty is 22. He'll be 23. And then Tori just turned 18 in October. And Shauna's about to turn 17 in January. And Sandy is about to turn 14. So, a lot of mothering. Uh, well, yeah. Yeah. So, what has it been like to have two kids, then four kids, then five kids? <laughs> well, at first it was... Uh, the two kids were amazing. Biological kids with my forever husband, right? And... Uh, thought we were living the dream, having fun, and we hardly ever fought, and, you know, I kind of did what my mom did, and cooked meals every night, and took care of the house, and had a job, and did this, and did that, and he worked a lot, and that was what he did, and uh, he would play with the kids, and do house projects, and stuff like that, but I was pretty much the parental role unless they got in trouble then the hammer would come down but they were always so scared of him that it didn't take much for them to be like i'm sorry oh, again. how did you get the girls uh so my so duke my first husband was um his sister had two girls and she was in california and was having some challenges with an abusive relationship with the girls' dad and so she asked to come stay with us and um, when you know he first said yes he's like okay this isn't a vacation you're not going to come here for two weeks and then be like forget it never mind I'm going back to him um, you need to stay and you need to find a job and you know all that so she agreed and so we picked them up at the bus station, bought them a ticket. And when we met them, she looked the same. She hasn't, I don't think she's changed in all the years I've known her, but the girls, Shauna was three and a half, almost, well, a little, little more than that. And she was. Uh, if I recall, still in diapers oh. and had shoes on that were like 
three times too big and were flopping and they were like sandals and her clothes didn't match and her hair was all toffled and she just looked kind of like a ragamuffin kid you know and then sandy was held by her mom and she had a diaper that had not been changed the entire time on their drive or the train ride and uh so you know, that was kind of the first image I got and was like, huh, okay. And I didn't think anything of it and um, realized, oh, she doesn't have a car seat. We're driving home illegally with these two children. And then the next day went out and got car seats and clothes and stuff because she had like nothing. And the littlest one, Sandy, was eating maybe three bottles a day and she was nine months old, mm. had no teeth, was teeny little thing and uh, I made reference that she wasn't eating enough food and that's why she cries a lot she goes no she cries because she wants me to pick her up and so she never understood all the baby cues yeah Yeah. and um, so we kind of you know we lived like that for a while and I started feeding Sandy a whole lot more food and gave her jarred food and stuff like that and within a month of being with us she got teeth okay (laughs) yay what a concept at nine months old getting teeth um but um she started to do better she still didn't want to go to anybody but her mom and wanted to be held all the time um it wasn't until early in november when uh um i got a call from the daycare and they're like, she's not here. We closed a half hour ago. We're going to have to call the police unless you can come get them. And I'm like, I'll be there, of course. And then I didn't have a car seat because oh. she had she the car, had seat. car seat. And I thought it was there. So I went to pick them up. And, well, she took the bus, so she didn't take a car seat. So anyway, um, but when Sandy saw me, it was the first time she ever, like, was like, oh, my gosh, I know you you're my hero and just kind of reached her hands out and was like take me away and ever since that point I could hold her and she could come to me and there wasn't a problem um but um anyway we had planned to be aunt and uncle and have um Callie figure out her life and get a job and live nearby and we could just be a very involved aunt and uncle extended family yes and well that's what we were we were aunt and uncle and she uh was doing okay it took a lot longer for her to get her stuff together than it should have and so what was supposed to be a couple months became like five and we were exhausted having her in her house and she was messy and you know, she didn't take care of the girls right and she didn't clean them right and her room was gross and there was food everywhere and just it was just you know gross and it was to the point that you need to move out and at that point um, was when the doctor um, called CPS because he thought that Sandy was failure to thrive and um, so then there was this whole CPS report oh, and the, in the CPS report they said well Um, she can keep her kids, but you have to stay, or she has to stay with you guys. And we were already like, 
but we just told her she had to move out. And, you know, they're like, well, the kids could stay with you and she could move out. And we're like, oh, okay. So it was, you know, well, what are, what are our options? And uh, finally the options was, well, she can stay with you and be with the kids. She can move out, you can keep the kids, or the kids can go to foster care. Right. And we both agreed that we'd not be able to handle her living in our house anymore. And so we said, okay, we'll keep the girls. We'll do what we need to do to get them to daycare and that type of stuff. And you do what you need to do to get your parenting classes done, get a job, get an apartment, get settled. And she was on the right track. She was doing good. And then right before Easter, you have any tissue? I do. In the car. Sorry. In the car. So do I. <laughs> um, uh, right before Easter, her mom and her grandma and her asked to take the girls out for a park afternoon. And it's like, okay, you know, they were with two adults we trusted other than her, and that was okay. And um, we were taking Ty up to Seattle for his birthday anyway, and it worked out good. And then we got home, and they were supposed to be there, and they weren't there. Another hour went by, they weren't there, and I called nothing and about three hours later I called the safety line number and said they went out for a day they were supposed to be back they're not back what am I supposed to do and he goes you need to call 911 and so I called 911 and they couldn't do an amber alert because she was the mom and I didn't have any paperwork saying otherwise and um, then I got a call from the grandma saying, why can't you just leave them be? Just let them do their thing. You could just pretend that everything's okay. And she just wanted me to ignore the fact that they took the kids. And I'm like, well, I signed a legal document saying that I would take care of them. That you're and responsible yeah. for their welfare, yeah. And you can't, you can't just take them like that. And so um, it took 11 days to get them back she they'd taken them all the way to Oregon and so then when they finally did come back they were taken at sheriff with a shotgun I don't know how violent it was but I'm sure they left peacefully but I'm sure there was a lot of tears and confusion and so they left with the sheriff and then the sheriff passed them off to a social worker and the social worker drove them to the border and then the, at the border the social worker met another social worker and they transferred cars and so three different strangers took them away. And then they got back to our house and saw me and Duke and were like, oh my gosh, we're, we're you know, we're safe, we're back home. And, uh, but they didn't understand, you know, why couldn't we stay with mommy? And um, trying to explain all that. And it was hard, but I mean, that was just one little snippet of it. But from that point, um, she, chose to not come back and try and fix things and disappeared and it was either we adopt them or they go to foster care so we adopted them and then later at some point things shifted for you uh yeah probably during all that and i just didn't know oh. but duke was having an affair with a co-worker That's true. and uh it had been probably going on for about two and a half years. And it probably started slowly and built up. And then he got more bold because he figured out I'm busy with two new kids and you know one of them is a baby and one of them is a toddler and I've got these other two kids. And um, 
I don't know how he, at any point he thought it was okay, but in his brain he did. And, uh, and I thought I was going crazy. I called him out a couple times on stuff. I asked him about stuff. Nope, nope, nope. Um, he started locking his phone and that was back when you didn't really lock your phone. So it was like, what are you trying to hide? And then I'd get up in the middle of the night, try and get into his phone and, oh. um, so it was becoming like very intense as far as, yes, I knew something was up. I thought I was going crazy. He basically told me I was going crazy and that I was just jealous and that there was nothing to be jealous about and that he loved me and yada, yada, yada. And, uh, um, eventually I started looking at phone records and I, when I first looked at him, I'm like, there's a lot of calls to this number. And I finally figured out the number was his coworker. And uh, then I realized I was looking at the reports wrong. And when I was scanning through, it was just showing me like a quick blurb of each page. But if I opened each page, then it showed like the whole long list. And so what was, I thought, you know, 15, call, or 15 calls or texts in a day was actually more like 120. That's, that's excessive. Well, <laughs> that's a, that's a relationship, a digital relationship. Yeah, so, and they worked together, and they went to lunch together, and I'm pretty sure they had sex in my van a couple times. Oh, nice. um, so yeah, um, but you know, and and they, we went to their house because they'd have barbecues, and so his, um, her, uh, her husband was there with their kids and. Uh, they came to his 40th birthday party and, you know, just all sorts of stuff that... So do you was, think the husband knew? No, he didn't know because I told him. Oh. And then I was a horrible person for doing such a thing. It wasn't my place. Well, you know, the, <laughs> the messenger always gets... Yeah, that know. was the first time I missed one of my kids' birthdays. I was so upset. I left work early. I went home and I packed a bag and I drove to his work. And I had everything positioned already switched to put into his car. I traded him keys and said, you're in charge of Ty's birthday this weekend. And, uh, and I left. And then he didn't know what was going on. He didn't know you knew at that point. I don't think he did, no. I mean, I think, I think he did, but it was also trying to save face in front of you know, his other coworkers. And yeah. you know, here's his wife coming in, who's always really nice and sweet. And, not seeming so sweet and exchanging keys and kind of just, you know, whatever. And I was gone before he got out to kind of where it probably clicked. And uh, so anyway, then I called. I, I don't think I called him. I think I texted him and I should have called him. But back then I was not so bold, I guess. And so I texted the husband and told him what was going on. And first he didn't believe me. And I'm like, whatever. <laughs> so just out of curiosity, did their marriage survive that? No. Oh. No, because she left when, when I tried to tell Duke I would forgive him and that it, he would come back. Because you wanted to save the marriage. Yes. Oh. And uh, he did not want to end that relationship or that friendship. And he wanted her in his life. And I said, well, that's not possible. You can't, you know, can't go back to just being friends after something like that and have that not be a big thorn in the side of our relationship and he said I'd never forgive him and that it'd always be there and um did do you, do you think back now that you would have been able to forgive him 
I probably not. I probably would have always um, thought he was up to something. And I, looking back, there were times that I thought he was up to something way before, and I just blew it off to being jealous. And yeah, so I there were things that should have told me never to marry him. And I'm glad I did. I mean, I it made me who I am and my kids and you have two direction. amazing sons. Yes. And. And I wouldn't have even known the rules, let alone be their mom. Um, but it's easy to want to think that, oh, if I just hadn't done this, yeah. then my life would be different. But our life is really this amazing traveled path of so many different switchbacks yeah. and changes. And it just gets us where we need to be. Yeah. Do you feel like you're where you need to be? Yeah, getting there. <laughs> yeah. So you're remarried now. Yes. Um, it'll be nine years in July, and uh, yeah, it's a very different relationship, but um, it is full of love and complete trust, and I can... You feel safe. I hear it in your voice. Yeah, I mean, I, I can tell him when he's, you know being an asshole <laughs> I could say it's always important to have yeah. that, that <laughs> yeah. ability in a I relationship ever do that being before. An asshole. <laughs> yeah I could not do that there would be no way I could do that and Duke would have been like why not you could have told me anything and it's like no because you're just scary there's just something about you that's scary and the boys felt it and they finally got over it when they became adults but the girls have felt it and it's never ever hit any of us you know but there was always just that fear of do you think it's a fear of not being forgiven or fear of having it held against you, or what, what's the fear? Because you said it's not a violent fear, but what's the well, fear? Well, it felt violent, but he never physically touched us, but it always felt like he would. Oh. Um, there was, when we finally broke up and we, he was over at the house doing something with the girls or something and we were fighting, and um, he had given me this new wedding ring on our last engagement, and uh, this was before I knew he was having an affair and all that. And uh, I had it on my hand still. And I'm like, God, I'm so mad at you. I just want to punch you. And I've never raised a hand to him because it's so scary, right? And he's like, whatever, just do it. And I, I did. And my left hand came up. And with that ring on, I punched him so hard. Um, and for a second, he just kind of went limp. And I thought, uh-oh. <laughs> And then when he kind of, he shook his head, like he kind of came back to, and he stood up and I dropped to the ground in the fetal position, covering my head. Cause I thought, but he, but, I went too far. But nothing happened. Nothing happened. He left huh. because he didn't want to hit me. So is, your relationship now is cordial, manageable, yeah. Yeah. Ma mostly manageable? Or? Manageable. I mean, we've had our, we've had our moments. There were times where I even felt like, hey, we could be friends, you know, we could do this co-parenting thing together. And, but, um, yeah, it doesn't work. He never believed with how I parented, all that gushy talking stuff, and, you know, what the hell? They need to be scared of you. So you're more of a nurturer and he's more of a, yes. How would you describe it? Oh, what's the word? Um, well, he's kind of a dictator. <laughs> I mean, it, so it's his my, way or the yeah. highway, you know? But he would never say that that is him. 
he would say he's laid back and he's funny and he's this and he's that. And he is all those things. But he's also all these other things. But I used to tell him he was a good man. And that, that was what would throw him. Because in his mind, he wasn't. And, it, and I always thought he was. And then I came to find out, oh, now I know why you got so mad when I tell you that. I mean, he would be like, stop telling me that. So he was having internal conflict. I'm sure. A lot of yeah, marriage. He compartmentalized a lot of stuff. But I, yeah. A lot of people do, especially men. Yeah. But I mean, we were at 18 years of marriage when we finally divorced. And we'd known each other for 20 or 21. So, it, I mean, it was over half my life. Yeah. And, but, and there was no divorce in my family. You know, my mom and dad were still together, and my sisters were together. And Are you the only one that's divorced? Yeah. Wow. Okay. It's a lot of divorce in my family. But yeah. Well, there's tons, like, on my mom's side. Um, yeah, like, yeah. her brothers, all of their kids ended up getting divorced, which is funny, because those are all the ones that you thought would not get divorced, you know? So it's funny It's kind it of ubiquitous now yeah. in terms of, like, our generation. Yeah. So what's the hardest thing you've gone through so far? Besides the divorce. Do you want to talk about that? Uh, I can. Do you want to take a short break? Uh, yeah. It's nice and quiet. Yeah. Definitely quieter than in there. <laughs> Maggie and I just stopped and got a hot drink after we spent, uh, um, yeah, 30 minutes walking in the beautiful forest right before the rain started and then the rain started coming down pretty good so where we left off was you were going to talk about one of the hardest things that's ever happened to you uh, and there's several which is kind of you ordered them and which is the most the scariest or the hardest would be just a month ago um when my daughter decided that she wanted to end her life for good this time. And how many other times had she tried before? Serious ones, probably four. Not serious ones, probably ten. Ones I don't know about, who knows. Um, but she had said goodbye to me in the morning, had breakfast, was dressed for school. I left. She, I thought she was going to leave a few minutes later. And then, like, a couple hours later, I was talking to my husband, and he said, oh, Shauna stayed home today because she wasn't feeling good. And I'm like, oh, she played you because she was fine this morning. And uh, I know she just probably doesn't want to go to school. And uh, then I texted her, and she didn't answer, so I assumed she was asleep. And... Um, I had a staff meeting that day, so I ended up staying at school longer than normal by about half an hour. Um, we even had a fire drill that day because the popcorn machine went off and they'd made us all popcorn and it, it took forever for the, the heat to rise and then it set it off like 40 minutes later. It was the funniest thing, um, but it ended our meeting. Uh, but anyway, um, as I was driving home, um, my sister had just signed papers for 
her business. Um, she was taking over a physical therapy company with a friend. And so I had heard that she got it, so I called and got a voicemail and left her this really nice, you know, long message of how proud I was of her and all of that. And then about two minutes later, I got a call from, or I got a text from Shauna that said, Mom, I did something stupid. And I said, what? And she didn't respond. And then I got a call from her friend who proceeded to tell me that she overdosed and was had called her to say goodbye. And Did you believe it? I did. Um, because the last couple times had gotten a little more risky and a little more risky where you know, one time she didn't tell anybody and it wasn't until the next day that we found out why she was acting as weird as she was and it was because of what she took. It didn't... It just caused hallucinations and things like that, but nothing really um, life-threatening. And um, Where was she getting things? Do you know? Um, anywhere. I mean, mostly, I mean, she would try and mix over-the-counter stuff with her meds or whatever. For a while, I didn't have her stuff locked up, um, and then I had to start locking it up. And the stuff she um, got this time was her own. And it was because I was, I could always leave like one week of pills set up and she wouldn't take it because she knew there's nothing, you know, that's not enough to do anything. And I had them out and it just, you know, one day led to the next and I kept meaning to do it and I didn't and things had been good and I wasn't really thinking along those lines and I didn't put them away. And so she overdosed on her own medication. And, uh, but I called Dawn and... I said, what do we do? You know, I was like, I'm like, do I call the police? Do I, you know, what, what can we do? He goes, I can be there faster than they can. And so he raced out the door and called Shauna on the way home to ask what's going on, see if she'd answer. And then he made reference that he was on his way home. And she said, well, I won't be here when you get here. And she took off. And I was a half hour away, and he was like six minutes away. So by the time I got home, I got home a little faster than 30 minutes. But, um, yeah, I was kind of doing 100 of 18. And, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, crying the whole time, saying, get out of the way, get out of the way, get out of the way. And I uh, tried to call Joyce, my sister. And um, she answered and couldn't hear me. And... And I'm sure she just thought I was calling to congratulate her again. On her job. And I tried to call you. So you didn't answer. Tried to call my mom. And they didn't answer. And it turns out it was one of the rolling blackouts. So none of their phones were working properly. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I just, I felt very scared. Very alone. Felt like somehow I'd brought this on myself. Like thought some weird thought of life would be easier without or whatever and that's so not the case but um then I was sitting in it going oh my god (laughs) you know somehow this is my fault and um got home and she was gone the fire truck was there and I kind of parked crookedly and ran into the house and then I don't know if I called the police or they called me or whatever, but we were on the phone and I couldn't talk. And so Dawn took my phone and then I'm like, I need my phone because I got to go. And so I he got off the phone with them and then I ran down the trail because um, I knew she'd go on the trail because cars couldn't see her on the trail. 
And uh, so every person I passed, I said, um, have you seen this girl? And I kind of described what she was wearing. And I guess I didn't really even describe what she was wearing very well. It was like, I thought she was in pants and she was in shorts. I thought it was a hoodie and it was like a crew neck sweatshirt and, you know, but I mean, I couldn't even describe her, but, um, I forgot to mention her age, you know, they're just like, no, we haven't seen anybody. And so I, I was running and I don't run. Um, and I ran the whole way down and the whole way through and every person that I stopped and asked them. And as, as soon as they said, no, I didn't even like, n- normally I'm polite. Just took and, off. Yeah. I just took off and yeah. I'm like, you can't help me. And then I stopped at this one mother and son and I must have looked pretty frantic because a guy running by took his headphone out to hear what I was saying and heard my description and he said, I just saw her. And so he said where he saw her and then where she was going, she could have gone left or she could have gone right and I, she could have circled back and I would have missed her. And uh, so I started to run and a guy drove or rode by me on a bike and I just shouted, hey, you, Mr. on the bike. And he stopped and he turned around and I told him what was going on. And, um, I, I, I don't even think I mentioned that she overdosed or anything. I just said, I, she's, she ran away. And uh, can you ride your bike that way? And if you see her, you don't have to stop her, but just don't lose sight of her. And I went this way and like, you know, to the left and around, which is the longer way. But... I was worried she'd circle back. And then I got to like the aquatic center and I was still kind of running and not running. And I'd asked other people along the way if they'd seen anybody. And, uh, this one guy was carrying his dog and acting like he was in a rush and he was heading to his car. And I mentioned something to him and he goes, there's voices, there's something going on over there. And he's like, I was putting my dog away to go help. And so I just took off running. And then, um, I heard the guy on the bike holler to me. And there was a, a, a man and his son standing there kind of looking like, what's going on? And she had gone off the trail down by this pond. And there was a bench down there, and she was sitting down there, and he's just standing by her. And I went over to her, and I hugged him before I hugged her because I was just so thankful that he'd found her. And uh, hugged her, and she was just so out of it, like drunk and high and all these things all at once and she just was like how did you find me and because uh, she didn't want to be found this no, time she, she did not want to be found and had she not called Anna I probably would have found her dead because I, I don't I, you know I would have thought she was asleep and if I'd gone and checked on her she would have looked like she was asleep and you know so um, and had I not asked the guy on the bike to help me, I don't know that I would have found her. I mean, I wouldn't have thought to look down there. And I don't know if he saw her go that way and she kind of, because she stumbled down there and she was all cut up from blackberries and stuff. But, um, but yeah, it was, it was the scariest thing I think I've ever been through. And I've been through some scary stuff. Um, but um, the fire department came, and then we ended up getting her to walk up to the ambulance. And um, she had a firefighter on one side, me on the other, and um, got her there. And then I rode with them because I didn't have a car. Went to the ER, and they didn't do much. Um, 
and and I've been down this road before so I thought oh here we're gonna sit here and then they're gonna say oh she's good enough to go home now and they're gonna want me to take her home and I can't take her home she's not safe and um, so partway through the night the social worker came in and was trying to talk to Shauna and Shauna was like in and out of consciousness and did they pump her stomach Huh? Did they, they didn't. They no, didn't. they didn't pump. They said we don't do that anymore, and they didn't oh. do charcoal, and they just they just gave her a lot of fluids, and then they gave her anti nausea medicine, which actually I think had the reverse effect because she ended up throwing up a bunch after that. But um, the social worker was just not a nice person. She came in and she thought Shauna was trying to avoid her, and she's like, "Well, I'll come back later when you can talk," and just was kind of snotty about it, and then. She didn't know Shauna's history. No, no. Um, and then later, um, I made reference because I saw her and I said, well, she seems to be more alert now if you have time. And she said, well, she had her chance and I'm working with this other person right now, so she'll have to wait. And I was just like, oh, okay. So later I told the doctor, I said, you know what, if we're here till morning, I'll just wait and talk to the social worker that comes on later because I don't want to talk to her. She's not a nice person. And uh, then shortly after that, um, she got transferred to Mary Bridge because they didn't have a, a bed to transfer her to that had a peed doctor and everything. So transferred her to Mary Bridge and um, the most awesome pit crew you could ever imagine came in. They were like they have their own mobile unit and they came in and they transferred her to the bed and hooked her all up and did all this stuff and took her vitals and she threw up all over them. And I mean, it was just crazy and uh, so it was 12 o'clock at night and I thought I've been down this rodeo before I know what tomorrow's gonna look like it's gonna be a long long day um, I should go get some sleep and so I went I talked to them and they're like yeah that's fine she's probably just gonna sleep the night away anyway so um, but have your phone on in case the doctor calls and so I at this point still thinking it wasn't as bad as I thought maybe and um, it's just like all the other times where she never didn't quite take enough or you know didn't plan it out quite right and uh, so I got home and I rested and ate a little bit and then I showered and went to sleep and about two hours later my phone rang and it was the doctor and she was telling me that she had to intubate my daughter and that's a first yeah and I was kind of then of course everything went through my head you're a horrible parent why didn't you go to the hospital you know what were you thinking um, you should have been with her um, all that stuff you know she's gonna die and you're not even gonna be there um, and so I told her I was on my way and I got dressed and I left and uh, went to the hospital and I got there and there's my daughter intubated and unconscious and I was thinking what the hell and she had had a seizure of the meds yeah and uh so she was in the icu and intubated and i just started crying again because i felt helpless and hopeless and that somehow all this was my fault even though everybody tells me it's not um but um so she was in the icu for a day the next morning, um, she woke up and was trying to pull the tube out, 
and they weren't going to take it out, but they ended up taking it out. And then later she got transferred to a different bed and then she got transferred to the psych unit and then we were able to get her transferred back to um, a resident program. So she's there now, but and she's been there before. She's been in a couple places, but when I hear this and I think about it, I, I think, I don't think I could have handled it. I know that you've handled it. I know that it's been multiple attempts. I think I, I mean, I know that we all think about what would I do if I were in that situation. I don't know that I could have just gotten up the next day or the day after that. It's so, so hard to feel um, strong. And do you think you're a strong person? I've always thought that I just do what I need to do. I never really thought about it as being strong or weak, but... Or I, I guess the word would be maybe resilient? Yeah, I would say I'm resilient. <laughs> but have you always been, or has this been yeah, a process? Yeah, no, I think I've always been. I think that's probably what's made me who I am. Um, I mean, I was resilient with the affair and, you know, was willing to take him back and we can work through this. And I was, you know, whenever we talked about moving, cause he moved us a lot. And, um, you know, I always would figure out, okay, these are the good things about it. And I could always look for the positive and whatever it was and focus on that. And I didn't focus on the bad. But um, when this happened, where did your mind go besides trying to beat yourself up from which is what I've heard. No, well, the only good was that she was still alive. And that's what you focused on? Yeah. And I texted Bill, the the guy on the bike. Yeah. And Because uh, I asked him to put his number in my phone. And so I texted him and told him that she was okay and that we were in the ER and, or in the ICU. And, you know, things. I, of course, by that time, I knew things were better. Um, and he responded with a very, very sweet text that he'd been thinking about us and was thankful he was where he was at the time and he could help and he'd been praying for us and it was just yeah the kindness of strangers yeah yeah and all I could think of was that's something my brother-in-law would have done Jeff yeah I think it's something that anybody would have done it's hard for us to always see that other people around us are willing to give yeah and he stayed and then he stayed when the fire department came. And then he went up and liked down the ambulance. And then he stayed till we drove away. And there were so many times that he could have been like, okay, I'm out now. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. So how are you moving forward? It's funny, because Dawn is like, well, the emergency's passed. She's safe. She's somewhere where she can't hurt herself. And you shouldn't be stressed anymore. (laughs) And, and, uh, I think part of me, you know, thinks about the what ifs of what if clip doesn't get approved? What if she comes home early? What if there's another attempt? What if I don't put something else away that she finds when I think I've got it all put away? Um, you know, she's almost an adult. What happens when she turns 18 and moves out? Um, and, those what-ifs will choke the life out of me if I let them. So I've been trying very hard to quiet the voices and not think about them. Um, and know that she's safe right now. And we're 
you know, and the next thing is, what are we doing for Christmas? So, Oops, sorry, I did bring you tissues. No, I have some here. So. Okay. There's a saying my mom has: um, "There, but for the grace of God, go I." And I think about that a lot when I hear your story, because it scares me. Yeah. It scares me for you. It scares me for Shauna. It scares me just. It scares me for any parent who, who has a child that wants to hurt themselves. Yeah. But it's also. It's also hopeful because you you've tried so hard to keep your life and your family together. You're a deeply nurturing person. <laughs> Not everybody can take one family, add to it, and then make a new family and add to that. Yeah. It takes a lot of heart and a lot of giving. It does, but I don't think about it like that. I just, that's just what I'm here to do. That's what I have to do. So is that how you see yourself? What do you mean? I mean, do you see yourself as a person who's destined to be a nurturer or a person who's destined to build a family and keep a family? Like, when I look at what it's been like to be you, I'm looking at, like, where, where are your motivations? Like, what is, it, what is it that drives you to want to have this deep connectivity with the family and extended family and all the pets that you have and all the pieces that you put together in your life? I don't know if I have an answer to that. Um, I don't know if I was trying to recreate the family I had growing up or if I was trying to have all the things I didn't have growing up or who knows. I mean, or it's just that is what you do. You're a mom and that's what you do. You're a mom and that's what you do. Yeah. I mean, I know my mom would have done any of that and all of that if she was in the same situation. But Infinite amount of love? Yeah, definitely. I remember when the boys, when we had the girls, the boys were worried that there wouldn't be enough love to go around. And I said, that's what's the greatest thing about love is that when you need more of it, it just grows. It's not like there's a limited supply. You just end up having more and more of it to give. Maggie invited me to walk with her at the zoo the following Sunday. I wanted more insight into how she kept moving forward even when she encountered setbacks. The rain had just passed and it was gray, cold, and damp. A typical December day in the Pacific Northwest. Look. Look oh, this way. It's a wolf. I love these guys. They're so pretty. They can even look so mangy in here. That's the fairy. This is a red wolf. These are smaller than the wolves that are in Yellowstone. Yeah. They look healthy and happy. They had babies not too long ago. Okay, squirrel moment, sorry. That's okay, I have mixed feelings about zoos, as you know. I know. Um, I think we need to go back that way. Oh, we do? No. Oh, it was nice to see them. So we, lent, we ended on a somber note, and things were, you know, you were, you were feeling pretty quiet. It had been a lot to have to converse about and share. How are you feeling now? I'm good. 
I, you know, it's funny because um, I have a counselor that I see, and uh, and I told him, you know, I I want to talk to my friends and I want to check in, but I feel like whenever I call, all I talk about is the crap that's going on in my family, and you know, the questions are, how's Shauna? How's this? How's that? Has Tori moved out yet? <laughs> um, and uh, and I'm like, and I don't want to call and bother them with this type of stuff. And he goes, well, can you just call them and tell them you want to go have coffee or call them and talk to them about something else or whatever? And so I thought, I could do that. I could try that. And I called my sister the other day and she's like, so what's going on? I'm like, <laughs> just calling to say hi. She's like, oh, okay. All right. Well, how's school? And I'm like, you know, it's alright. And then she's like, could hear it in my voice. She's like, so what's going on with school? And it was just like, everybody is so worried about me. And that kind of adds another layer of exhaustion so to my thought processes at times. If people are worried about you, does that make you feel like you should be worried about you? Uh, no. I've done this for so long. I think it's just become part of who I am. What do you mean by done this for so long? What's this? I don't know, like lived in chaos, um, tried to be the calm in the storm, I don't know, just life whirls around me all the time with everything and I never know what's coming in next, you know, it's kind of like that saying, um, just keep moving forward or, or just something about a ship full of crap. And there's going to be another ship full of crap right behind it. I so have never just, heard that saying. But. I, I, I will have to find it for you because I can't remember it at the moment. But it's just that, it, you know, as you travel the seas, there's just, you're still going to come across ships full of crap. But, like, that's crap. You can cut that out. <laughs> anyway. So do you see yourself as a person that has always lived in chaos? As an adult, more so, yes. As a kid, I don't remember that, but... Well, I, I'm just going to backtrack for you, because we talked about last week about how um, at some point when you were um, a very young woman, before you even turned 18, you moved out of your home, Yes. which by all standards was a very good home. Yes. As far as, like, needs met in terms of... Yes, I was fed, I was clothed. Oh, my goodness. It's an Arctic fox. Um, I was loved, but it was also the generation where they didn't say it very often. Yeah. And, you know, it wasn't tons of physical connection, hugs and stuff like that. Um, so, uh, but there were, there were other things going on in my family that, um. So do you think at that point that's where the chaos started? It could have. Could have been my way of fixing the chaos, and then I've just never stopped fixing it. <laughs> so. so, you see yourself as a person who's always struggling against some outside force of chaos. Yes. Okay. And I wondered about resilience and how that figures into your life. Specifically because, I mean, when I think about other people that I know, and I have people in my immediate family, and people I know through other people, 
who really struggle with comebacks, right? Something okay. happens to you and they just crumple. You know, they crumple. They don't. They can't come back from it. And yet you keep coming back. Well, isn't that something we teach our students? You know, it's like if you do something and you reach that plateau, if you just stop there and go, okay, I'm at the top, and you never test yourself from that point, you're not going to move. But you have to keep going. You have to be willing to drop back down because then the next plateau you reach is so much higher. And yeah. if we're not willing to do that, What's the point? Well, the people don't. People do stay at the same plateau. People do crumple. They do just, they just, just sort of fall inward and cannot, cannot cope with a challenge, a change, a tragedy. They don't. Yeah. They get stuck. And I know a lot of stuck people, and I think you do too. And so when you're looking back at your life, how is it that you have been able to affect a comeback or be resilient? I I don't know. I've just always done it. Is that uh, something you learned from your mom or your dad? Or is it is it something that you would see in other people in your family? Well, I mean, having, you know, um, it's funny because, you know, with all the new teaching and things with, that we do with the um, culturally responsive teaching and learning how to work with a diverse population and all that um, so one of the books that I read was Waking Up White and uh, it uh, talked about being a, a wasp and um, how she grew up and how like you couldn't you couldn't really be rude or say what was on your mind you had to kind of just you know pave the way and be nice and all this and a lot of the things she was describing in her childhood were similar to what I experienced um, where you know I had a good home and um, never wanted for anything and we got to go on family vacations and went to school and just never had any of those challenges um, and never really thought about it and um, so I guess I just kind of thought everybody was like that and as I've grown older I realized that's hardly the case and a lot of people struggle, and I want to do what I can do to help that struggle for people, but my counselor also tells me I do too much for everybody else, not enough for myself, so. Right, but, I mean, the people you end up helping are not necessarily, I mean, I wouldn't say that you don't help your students and that you don't play a role in the lives of people you interact with, but the people that, you, that end up needing the most help from you have been, have been your children, Yes. Your adopted children, even your sons, and your, your stepchildren. Those, those are the people that, that have been your daily task of, of trying to deal with chaos. Yes. But it, it is what it is. I don't know. I mean, I don't know how to answer that any other way other than that's what I do. And that, I mean, if I don't do it, it's not going to get done. And... I'm not allowed to die, <laughs> so there's that, um, you know, because everybody would not be able to make it through 
if something happened to me. And uh, well, I'm going to say I would never want anything to happen to you, but I don't agree with that. Oh, I, I, well, I constantly tell them I'm like, I'm sorry, that's not something I can promise. I can't, you know. Yes, but people do make it through. They either get they stuck where they, they are, and they make it through. But they make it through. It's just at one point, and I'm going to ask you kind of a. Well, we're kind of in a loud place. We're over here by the walrus. Where, where do you fall into all this? Do you think that that you want them to rely on you as much as they do? No, you don't. <laughs> no, but they no. do. But they do. And then part of me wonders: Did I do something wrong that made them? Who is making so much noise? Um, if I did something wrong that, you know, I would never been, I mean, you're using the term wrong and I wouldn't say like wrong or right, but is, is there something about you that has led them to believe that they need to do anything for them for ever? Yes. Well, that you would fix things for them because you're talking Uh, about, no, because it is him. That is a walrus, folks. <laughs> a very loud walrus. Oh my goodness! Who are you talking to? He's just chilling. Oh, awesome. he's beautiful. Yeah, the old one died finally. Mm. He was huge. There's two. Um, I always, you know, like Sandy wants me to order for her, or Sandy wants me to do this or that. You mean for order her. her food? Yeah. And I'm like, no, you, you're almost 14 years old. You're going to order your own darn food and stuff like that. I, I don't, I don't baby them. I don't, um, you know, I, I kind of pretty much hold them accountable all the time. And, uh, but I will ask you this. You, you're not a fan of failure though. Uh, I'm, no, I wouldn't say that. I would say that. I am fine with failure as long as you don't quit. Ah, okay. If you if you're gonna fail and then be like, screw it, whatever, I'm done, then that doesn't really help. That's kind of like hitting that plateau and stopping, right? Instead of saying I can do this and push through. So. So, your counselor asks you about this that you need to like talk to people and call people that you feel like you're you're having to check in with your own mental health a lot because you're trying to offset the mental health of all the other people that rely on you yeah yeah I mean we have our walks every week and you know I almost said I don't want to go today which is a very rare thing right because I love going out with you and I love talking and walking and just feeling like you know, you get that, I have so much to do, I have so many things to take care of, and in all reality, most of it can wait, Yeah. and uh, that's why I'm here, because <laughs> I knew I, I needed to see you, I wanted to see you, and um, but making that effort for self-care, yeah. Uh-huh. I'm still I'm still really thinking about the idea of resilience and I keep saying that word over again and I don't mean to say it in a, to, 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 to get you to say that you're resilient it's just you have a, a lens through which you see your life and then other people like 
how you see you, what it's been like to be you, and how I might see you, or another person right. nearby might see you. His perspective is really different, depending on your position. Correct. And I see that you have a, a, an incredible amount of resilience. And my Thank curious you. brain tries to figure out how that, how you affected that, how that became part of you. Is it part of your childhood? Is it when you left home early? Is it something ingrained in the early conditioning from your family? I Because I know a lot of people that aren't resilient. So do you. Yes. I have people in my family that aren't resilient. So do I. Um, and... I've just, I've always been the type of person that could look at a situation and go, wow, that sucks, but, and then figure out another way to spin it. So you've, you're, you're the silver lining person. Yeah, I guess so. But I actually follow through and I make the silver lining happen. So... Maybe that's why I get so exhausted. (laughs) It's hard to paint that silver lining around every cloud. (laughs) I don't think that we necessarily need to. Sometimes things just are. Yeah. They are what they are for for whatever time period they they happen. And then something else shifts and something else changes. Yeah. Well, I'm also, you know, I'm a religious person. And I believe that. Things do happen for a reason and that there's often things that we cannot see, um, you know, working on a much bigger level than us. Do you feel like your faith has played a role in your resilience? Uh, yeah, I would say yes. I would say, I mean, I mean, there's so much research out there that says any kind of faith, right? It doesn't matter whether it's in mother nature or whether you're a Buddhist or Hindu or Christian or Catholic or whatever, that um, having faith helps you to survive better, have more joy and live longer and have better relationships. And, um, and I think it, it, you know, it gives you somebody you can talk to when nobody else is around. So I talk to God a lot. So faith, though, you know, necessarily having faith isn't always necessarily part of being a religious person. It True. can just be a mindset that you believe that things yes. are going to go well. Or yeah, I've not op- found a church that I like since the last one that basically made it clear I was not as welcome as I could be. So. Any specific reason? Uh, because it was okay when my husband cheated on me, and there was support there for that. But then as soon as I remarried too fast and my son was gay and came out of the closet then that was it it wasn't that I was unaccepted but a lot of people didn't come to my wedding they said it was too soon they just couldn't see themselves there and it's like oh thank you for that support um I'm gonna be there because I'm getting married and you know what all my true friends were there and I stopped going to that church um, the pastor wouldn't marry us because we were living in sin. I'm like, you know what? I'm almost 40 years old, and I've been around the block. I know what sex is. 
I don't think I need to hold off <laughs> or wait till marriage. And I just, you know, so it's stuff like that, that, that hard, fast rules. I'm not, I'm not that. I am a rule follower, but you know. The so the inflexibility or the unwillingness to accept. Yeah. There is a tiger. Did you know that? No, That's I did not. That's what I was hearing. He's beautiful. So faith, your faith, despite the fact that you still, you no longer have a church to attend, your faith hasn't wavered at all. No. Because church, for you, church and and your beliefs are not, are not. No, no. They don't go hand in hand. No. Church screws up a lot of <laughs> things that it, um, that faith probably gets right on the nose, you know? Yeah. So. Um. So in your family, you're the only person that you would say is deeply spiritual. Yeah, Don would claim he is, but... Oh, there's the other tiger. Um, he would claim he was, but, you know, his, his response is, you know, I have my own relationship with God type thing. And it's like, you know what, I guess that's what I do too, because I don't have that fellowship. I don't have that church. And I enjoyed that fellowship and that church and that participation but it just it was not authentic so um but cody is incredibly religious has a church that he found in chicago goes to his small group every other week or something like that and uh, and ty is i don't know what, uh, not agnostic what is he he told me the other day what it is more, you know, earthy and uh, focused on nature is his religion. Yeah. Yes. Huh. So, but yeah, kind of all over the board. <laughs> okay. But I mean, I'm wide open to all of it. Are the elephants out? We'll go that way. Yeah, we can go see the elephants. I know uh, they're your favorites. Uh, but yeah, I mean. I mean, they're all my kids, right? So whether I am a Satan worshiper or a nature believer or, you know, I mean, Tori would probably say she's an atheist. Um, but I don't care. You know, they're my kids. I love them. Oh, they're dirty. So I think we come back to love, infinite amount of love. Well, yeah, I mean, it always grows, right? You can just keep adding more and more people to it, and the love just keeps growing. Unfortunately, there's only so much energy and time in a day to be able to do that. If I had my way, I'd, you know, I'd have a foster home full of eight foster kids and shoveling them everywhere they need to go, and, you know. But, and I've thought of that, like, in an alternate life or when I'm older or what, what would that look like? And Don just thinks, oh my gosh, exhaustion, exhaustion. <laughs> but he always jokes, I hate kids. Why would, <laughs> why would I want kids? But. So how are you feeling about Shauna this week? Um, well, she called me the other day and was very upset and was like, I, why did I say yes? This is stupid. Because she's because she's staying longer and it got approved and all that and 
Um, and I tried to help her through it. And sometimes I'm too matter of fact or um, don't have the answer she wants or whatever. And finally she's like, I don't even know why I called you. Just never mind. I'm going now and hung up on me and I haven't heard from her since. And that was like four days ago. I was going to call her today, but um, I'm trying to give her her space, you know, let her do what she needs to do to work through this. Cause I know that's hard. I mean, but in her mind, she just wants to come home and be left alone. And it's like, but that's the problem, you know, and trying to find her a place where she feels like she has community and love and that she can heal. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, the, you know, it goes through different times where she doesn't want to heal. She doesn't, you know, she isn't resilient. She doesn't have that bounce back mentality. And then other times she does. And um, it just doesn't stick. And so I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. And, you know, and it lasts till somebody says, well, what about this? And they're like, oh, you crushed my dream, you know, and poof, I can't do it anymore. And so. Do you think she feels like she's um, cursed or I don't know what the word is, like destined to always have a crisis or destined to always be unhappy? Do you, because some people in their minds, they cannot ever see or like extrapolate out into a point in the future where things will be better. In her mind, life is just a daily grind that there is no joy, there is no purpose, and you just wake up and do the same damn thing over and over again. Oh. And what's the point? Um, she will tell you that she's not worthy of being loved, that um, when people tell her things like she's pretty or she's smart, she's this or that, she does not believe them and thinks they're just, you know, blowing smoke to, for whatever purpose. And, um, but has no self-esteem or desire to, I don't know, do anything other than be thin. Yeah. And so, you know, when you look back on her life, there's not a whole lot that you know before about age four. Right. And that's really difficult. And I can, I can guarantee there was stuff. Who knows what stuff, but. You mean abuse? Uh, yes. On probably many different levels. And definitely neglect and um, yeah I mean her sister got out of it right she was only nine months when she came to me and you know it was like a year and a half when the adoption went through and she doesn't remember anything to her I am mom and she knows she has another mom but she doesn't care and and now even Shauna is just like the only reason I want to see her is to tell her off but, but there's still a lot of hurt there. Oh, yes. A lot of rejection. And a lot, yeah. a and lot I don't think Sandy has any of that. I don't even think she knows how to comprehend what Shauna goes through. And, and looking back on that, you see that, like, just how a series of experiences can have such a devastating effect on two different people who were living at the same time. Yeah. So. Yeah. And Sandy seems to me to be a pretty resilient kid. Yes. She's yeah. kind of tough as nails, actually. She, she is. I mean, she's stubborn as all get out. Oh my God, that kid is stubborn. Yeah, but I mean, and I have a stubborn one too. But I would say that being stubborn isn't always a bad thing. No, no. It's, I mean, it helps make you move forward, right? You know, well, like the result of something, it's going to push you to fix it because you're not willing to accept 
something the way it is. Yeah. I would say she she may not be your biological daughter, but that kid is your daughter. <laughs> yes, she is. <laughs> we even have the same mannerisms. We're both lefties. We both have similar scar marks, and uh, yeah, it's crazy the things that we have it, that are the same. Definitely the test of nature versus nurture. Well, I think that no matter what happens, you moving forward with, with Shauna, she has a support system and she has love and she has a lot of people that care about her. But I think for you, your, uh, your mental health is, is obviously the most important thing you can deal with right now. And... So everyone tells me. So everyone tells you. It's sort of like, it's sort of like the cliche thing that people tell you. But your hope is the one thing that's going to get you through all of it. Yes. You need a tissue break. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, your hope. You can always say, when we were having the conversation last week and it was really hard to talk about what happened to Shauna, and you had said, well, she's still alive and I still have her. Mm-hmm. So you still have hope. Of course. So it'll be a new year soon. Do you ever look at the new year and think to yourself, aha, I can do something different this year? <laughs> I used to. I used to always do, you know, New Year's resolutions or whatever. And, you know, they were always like, oh, I'm going to eat better. I'm going to work out. I'm going to this. I'm going to that. And, uh, of course, they don't last. And I think um, I think it, for resolutions, it needs to be more like, I'm going to change my perspective, you know? Okay, I'm so gonna... let's talk about that. Because I think that's kind of the, the, the nail I'm trying to hammer in, is perspective. Like, what about your perspective do you think you could change right now that might affect your life in a positive way? Well, one of the things that... Um, my counselor's always saying is, you're a great mom. You've done everything for these girls. They never would have had this life without you. And you need to accept the fact that you can't do everything. And that uh, you can't protect 24-7. You can't hide every implement, every drug, every, you know, source of harm. And um, that they're going to do what they're going to do. And that, you know, Sean is almost out of the house. She's to be, I mean, she'll have had two different birthdays, 16 and 17, in treatment. And, uh, and it's like, you know, no sweet 16 for you, no party, no fun gifts. And it's sad, but I've done what I can do, and I need to just accept the fact that this is building her for who she is going to be. And I just hope that she can eventually find who she's going to be and move forward with that. Maggie and I chatted of random things as we finished walking the zoo. On my drive home, I thought about our second conversation. Maggie talked a lot about constantly grappling with chaos. I didn't necessarily think I was hearing about chaos, but rather challenges of adopting children and integrating large blended families. Things that created enormous tasks that had to be tackled. Maggie tries to work her way through them, and she has a faith about her. 
a strong, deep, abiding faith that gives her this centeredness that lets her step forward, even if stepping forward is a small thing, like a silver lining. And I think that's how she can meet these challenges and not fall apart. She has this belief, at some point in the future, everything's going to be okay. Okay. 